PR, Pro Cannabis Media. Hi, I'm Jimmy Young, the founder of Pro Cannabis Media. We're here every single Friday from 4 p.m. to 6 p.m. Eastern to talk about the business of cannabis. And I have a kind of a nice announcement to mention. This is actually the beginning of our third year of this program. That's right. We started back in two years ago uh, with David Rabinovitz as my co-host. Some of you guys on this uh, panel might remember him. Uh, and we've been going now for almost every single Friday over the last two years. And now we start our third year. And obviously, we appreciate everyone tuning in, liking, sharing, subscribing, and all that neat stuff that uh, we ask our audience to take part in. We have two guests in our Zoom room, in our chat room tonight, or today, actually. Uh, one is someone who probably doesn't need much introduction uh, in the cannabis world. His name is Blake Mensing. He's a very accomplished attorney, uh, friend, entrepreneur, parent, the whole nine yards. How are you, Blake? I am well. Thanks for that intro. Sure, happy to do that. And of course, another gentleman uh, who may not need much of an introduction, especially in the north, north, and I don't even know if I call Haverhill and Amesbury the North Shore, Scott. Is that considered the North Shore? It is. It is. Haverhill and they're, they're both part of the Merrimack Valley as well, but I you can't get any farther north than we are, so we're definitely the North Shore. <laughs> There you go. You're certainly in the north part of Massachusetts. Scott Winters from CNA Stores. Hey, guys, when we uh, kicked around ideas for this particular show, we, I really wanted to find people who understood the importance of socially responsible capitalism. Because in the cannabis space, you know, you hear a lot about these big multi-state operators and everybody loves to take shots at the multi-state operator. You know, they're the ones that are acquiring little people and and uh, and then expanding and build and taking up more space and more space anyway the bottom line is there is room to be a good business person and still do the right thing for those who have been most impacted on the failed war on drugs now scott you are a veteran i know recently that i think it was north shore magazine that did a feature on you guys you are you embrace the idea of giving back to the community as someone who's in the cannabis business, right? We do, Jimmy. And Jimmy, thanks for having us. Um, I First, I want to start off. I am not one of our veterans. Okay, um, sorry. I, I always tell people, oh, it's okay. People do it all the time. You uh, do what I, the veterans tell you to do. I, <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Um, I always tell people I'm a veteran of the cannabis wars. Um, <laughs> we are veteran-owned, and, and 30% of us are veterans um, when we open to cultivation this time next year, uh, we're hoping to be at 50% uh, uh, veterans. Um, I'm sorry, what was the question again? I, I oh, how important it is to, oh, look who else is joining us now. Um, uh, uh, how important it is to, you could still be a successful capitalist and give back to the community and uh, also make it easier for those who have been most impacted by the war on drugs to get into this business, right? Yeah, I think those two go hand in hand. I think um, some of the companies, you know, excluding, you know, pull, pull, pull away from the cannabis space. Some of the local businesses that have been around for 40 some odd years are the ones that have that reputation of giving back. Uh, we have a local hardware store that has donated land and buildings to our, our local food pantry and our local museum. 
Um, we all can shop in, I mean, uh, New Hampshire's two minutes from my house. We could all go to the big box stores, but we choose not to. We choose to support this business because they support the community. And I think, I think that's just a, it's, it's just a smart business practice in general. So I, yeah, I think, I think, um, I think those two should coexist. Um, I think there's, you know, there's, you know, if you're building your business for that type of longevity, I don't think there's another way of doing it, honestly. So, and none, none of, none of my team um, feel that, you know, that there's another way of doing business. So we work really hard to, uh, to do that. That's great. And uh, I know Blake Bensing uh, buys into that whole uh, mantra because uh, I'm pretty sure, I don't know if I can officially say this, Blake, but uh, pretty soon we'll see another dispensary in Boston in a great location, right? That's right. Um, so at the end of July, the Boston Cannabis Board uh, gave one of my companies the green light for a host community agreement uh, for a retail store directly across the street from South Station. Um, I think that is, you know, obviously uh, the location spoke for itself. Why wouldn't we want to be across the street from a building that sees 70 to 80,000 people go through it a day? Yeah. Um, so like, you know, many people in the space, the, the first domino that needs to fall is real estate. Um, you need to have an address on your application when you're going through, you know, the various steps in the process. Uh, we happen to find a, a ridiculously primo piece of real estate. Um, and we sort of had um, a little bit of trouble dealing with the fact that the landlord required us to rent two floors. We thought, well, what the heck are we going to do with two floors? We don't need 6,500 square feet uh, of retail. It's just, it's not necessary. Um, so what we did is we are dedicating the second floor, uh, which is right now just, you know, essentially office space. Um, to any nonprofit with a restorative social justice focus to use for events, trainings, et cetera. Um, we're going to be doing our own periodic expungement and record sealing clinics. Uh, and in addition, we're going to be offering uh, nominally priced bud tender trainings for anyone who uh, lives in an area of disproportionate impact. So, you know, for 10 bucks or so, we're going to give people the tools they need to make sure that they can comply. Um, and, you know, just getting a little bit of a stamp of approval from, you know, someone like myself who happens to know the regulations really, really well, just making sure people are armed with compliance mindset. Absolutely. And uh, joining me as my guest host for the rest of the program, uh, it's a gentleman that's been uh, come a, kind of a regular here on Green Rush Live. His name is Josh Kincaid. He hails from Washington State. So once again, uh, Pro Cannabis Media goes coast to coast. Josh, how are you today? I'm good, Jimmy. Just got back from New York last night, so a little tired, but I am alive and well. And uh, you were in New York for a, a show or just for pleasure? No, I was there for uh, Finnovate. It's a financial innovation conference, but I did make my way around to 17 store or pot shops, I should say. So I did a little bit of a crawl, but only two to report on. So that'll go live next Friday um, in New York. I will, I will say this. New York doesn't have a chance in hell to catch California in terms of cannabis sales. I'm going on record saying that. I've seen it. I've been there. A lot of people from New York are like, oh, we're going to be the world's capital. No, you're not. Not even close. And maybe we can go into detail a little bit uh, later, but not even close, New York. Not even close. Wow. That's a bold prediction. Blake's already going like this. So I, I see you have some support on that. Uh, that's not the scuttlebutt, of course, I hear from New York, because as you know, right. they're the biggest biggest state the biggest media market yeah. you know they're the biggest blanks of all time um because i'm from boston and you know how i feel about new yorkers but anyway um i do want to ask josh a question because we kind of set this up by talking about the importance of the 
new person, whether it be the multi-state operator or the mom and pop craft grower, mm. uh, doing the right thing and having a, a socially responsible capitalist way of doing business. Uh, Washington has had it uh, legal for a long time. Oh, are there any initiatives in Washington state or what's your feeling about the importance of making sure that you give back to the community, making sure that there are opportunities for those who have been most impacted on the failed war on drugs in your state? Uh, just in general, I'll just say that the uh, Social Responsible Investing SRI or the ESG Environmental Social Governance has a, has a, a big backing behind it. So the, the world of angel investors and, and novice investors alike like the idea of giving back to the community. So I think that lawmakers are getting behind it. I think um, individuals are getting behind it. Activists obviously are pushing for it. So it, there's a time and a place, and I think both of them are now. And it's long overdue. Washington at the 10-year mark uh, is just at the point now where we're starting to get some momentum on that movement, on that front of getting some uh, some social equity movement. And so if there's going to be cannabis lounges or uh, the moratorium on uh, licensing for rec stores lifted, the priority will go towards the most impacted individuals from the war on, on drugs. So I believe that uh, Washington will probably implement that maybe 2023 when they have a little bit more time uh, and start, hopefully start um, implementing that on, on a small level, even with uh, tier one farms, that's like really like less than 10,000 square feet of farms. Mm -hmm they might be able to have direct sales. And so helping them in any way, any capacity that they can is starting to gain momentum and traction in the Washington state market. Yeah, I think we all talk about it as being the right thing, but I also recognize that uh, it's so difficult uh, to actually be in this business now with all the regulations, all the compliance issues, all the costs, the inability to write off your regular business expenses. Uh, Blake, I know that you know all too well uh, what I'm talking about. The, the margin of profitability in this industry is minuscule in many ways, isn't it? Absolutely, yeah. So Internal Revenue Code Section 280E basically says you're naughty for making money from a controlled substance, but notwithstanding that naughtiness, you gotta pay the tax man. Um, <laughs> And, and basically what it does is it limits the available deductions uh, to cost of goods sold, which is as the name implies, what it costs you to make that product is potentially deductible. Um, for a standalone retailer, you know, you're not making the product, you're buying it at wholesale. So your available deductions are, are virtually nil. Um, there was a, a recent change in state law in Massachusetts that the governor signed at the end of July here um, that will decouple the state's tax treatment uh, from the federal 280E. Um, so, you know, old friend David Rabinovitz calculated that that will probably result in about a 2.4% uh, tax relief, for, uh, you know, for a retailer, uh, every penny counts. Um, you know, when you look at the numbers, people always focus on the gross revenues. Well, that doesn't matter. You have to pay the tax man, you got to pay your staff, you got to pay, you know, 40 to 50% at wholesale. If you're not self-supplying, you know, as a vertically integrated player, then, you know, you're paying a lot of middlemen. Um, so yeah, I, I think the way the federal government treats taxation here, um, you know, honestly is a perverse incentive for them to drag their feet on federal legalization because they get more money now by saying this is all, you know, naughty behavior. Hey, Scott. Yep. You don't have to raise your hand, by the so, way. So Blake, I, you know, I, we also, you know, we, we call something the green tax, 
Um, and I think you alluded to it a little bit with having to rent two floors. Um, we've had to do that with, with facilities and get creative. We did the same thing in Amesbury as we put one of our charities in that second space. Um, but, you know, we've also seen in some of our, our spots that, you know, the, the rent is a bit higher, substantially higher. For, for it's like going to a reception hall and letting the word wedding slip. You yeah, exactly. exactly. So, <laughs> so, hire yeah. a photographer or a wedding photographer. And it, exactly. And it's a $10,000 cost difference. Right. If, so if you looked at the price of rope, rope is really cheap. But if it's a, a leash for a dog, it's 15x. And I'd say <laughs> no. the same thing about real estate in, in Seattle. It's 15x if you're in cannabis versus anything else. Right. How is this industry going to survive with all these regulations? All everybody, it seems, is working against the industry and, and trying to slow it down so it doesn't, uh, well, survive, let alone explode. Blake, I know that you understand the challenges of getting into this business. Sure. I think stated pop policy rationales for why a law gets created have to be you know, met. So, you know, I've, I've had the privilege of, of being out in Seattle and went to a few shops. You know, they charge 39% tax on the retail product. Most states say, we want to have this be legal so you stamp out the illicit market. Why would I pay 40% more for a product that's potentially, at least in Massachusetts, that's frankly not as good as you can get on the illicit market, at mm -hmm. least here? Um, I thought the weed was pretty good in Seattle, but that's because they've been doing it a little longer than we have. So, yeah, I think you just have to frankly, get politicians out of the conversation. And that's hard because they're the ones who make the laws. But um, they often pat themselves on the back for words that don't work in reality. Um, you know, I shudder every time I see a news story that, you know, touts Massachusetts's first in the nation social equity program. Yeah, you set up the program, but you didn't put any money behind it uh, right. until this new, recent passage of law. Right. Um, the trainings were, you know, largely great, but it's not enough to get someone ready to do it all themselves. Um, and actually just going back to the South Station project, um, having had so many meetings with potential investors and economic empowerment and social equity applicants, it always sort of devolved when the you know, person writing the big check would say, well, how can I trust that this one person is going to steer the ship in a way that I can understand? Because it's you know, usually someone they don't know. So the corporate structure I came up with for, for Boston um, was with an eye towards getting people in the industry, you know, getting their foot in the door. So we're a majority owned by six social equity and economic empowerment applicants. Um, that had regulatory significance. And of course, that's the way I think about everything. Um, each one owns eight and a half percent of the store, which means they can then still own three brick and mortar retail stores when they try to go somewhere else. So we're arming them with skills, direct experience and dollars. So when they're at the table the next time with an investor, the investor says, well, how do I know you can do this? And you, they can say, well, I'm a co-owner co and operator, of potentially one of the business stores in the state. Uh, and I'm bringing my own, you know, war chest of funds to the table and that direct experience. So I truly hope that people copy that model. Uh, you're, you're rarely going to hear a lawyer saying, steal my idea, but please replicate it. It hedges the risk for the investor. It helps more people at once. Uh, and I do think it's going to be a good stepping stone for them when they try to do their next uh, thing. Now, we all know that New York um, is waving the flag saying, well, it's Massachusetts may have done the first social equity program, but we're going to get it right this time. 
Uh, yeah, yeah. No, I've already got something in the, in the chat room that's basically saying it's basically a blank show uh, in New York right now. Um, you, Josh, you just came back. When you said you went to 17 shops, there's no open legal licensed shops in New York yet, right? Well, it, attain no licensed regulated shops, no, because attain was purchased um, uh, recently for two hundred and something, two hundred fifty uh, million for four locations. It wasn't open though. It was it was like the the name is there. Um, it looks like it should be open, but it's not open. The, what what they do have are CBD shops selling D eight Delta eight mm -hmm. and knockoff uh stizzy maybe it's not knockoff maybe stizzy is just out there and they don't care um the stizzy is all over new york um but you know they're there's mostly cbd stores selling uh illegal illicit products and the two stores that i found were running as um like medical shops so you had to pay a day rate to be able to get in there um only they those were the only two that allowed me to take photos the other people were like no photos and i knew immediately when they say no photos that it's not a legit shop right so um, <laughs> now there are people i want to tell you that's true josh but here in massachusetts i'm i always ask when i go into a dispensary with a camera does anybody not want to be seen on camera that's even different though Right. <laughs> okay. Even though we all know that Big Brother's watching every single move in a dispensary, right? Um, well, so Jimmy, in, in Washington, they won't let you take photos of the people because they don't want those individuals to get robbed or to be tracked after hours. And then, you know, so there's there's that. There's the not getting the face of the people is one thing, but taking pictures of the, the product is totally different. And, you know, it's a lot like Vancouver in New Vancouver, BC in New York right now, Vancouver, BC, you'll see people on the street just selling it and nobody cares in New York. Same thing. It's all over the place. Uh, Times Square, they're just selling it in bags. Like here's a, um, a mystery bag, just buy a box, of, you know, a bag of cannabis mystery. Seriously. I was like, what is happening here? This is, um, you know, I was just, I was just puffing on, on one pre-roll that I got for free. Actually, it's not bad. But for $10 for, you know, maybe half or three quarters of a gram, never. Nobody is going to pay for that. Nobody. But that, well, that, that's kind of what you see before yes. the regulation really takes hold um, is you kind of see this gray area. Yeah. And a lot of folks can get away with a lot of things yeah. in that gray area. A lot of states stay in that, like, um, you know, Maine kind of stayed in that area. Mm. Um, but they did it, you know, they went, they went to the ballot box and, and lobbied and voted to, to, to put it where it is. But, uh, you know, for years, Maine was in that, that, that gray area. Yeah. Uh, but to that point, as soon as it becomes regulated, it does correct. And, and Blake, to your point, prices are crazy high. They're going to all come down. Every market comes down eventually in price and availability. And, you know, in Vancouver, they didn't buy concentrates for the longest time because it was poop soup. It was this black, nasty stuff nobody wanted. And so you, yeah, you're, you're not going to you're not going to spend 40 percent more on something that's trash. And so you have to kind of have this this uh, this happy medium where taxes aren't too much and the quality isn't too bad. And then people will actually buy your stuff. And so, uh, you know, Vancouver is starting to get more sales as prices are coming down. You have that equilibrium. But every new rollout is excessively high in price until reality kicks in. Gotcha. Yeah, one quick point on the New York situation. So I think some of those stores are confused by the fact that they might have, uh, you know, a registration with the Department of Revenue there to pay taxes. 
they think, oh, I'm legal. I'm paying taxes on it. Um, you know, go back to 280E, you're paying taxes on that, but it's very clearly not legal at the federal level. Um, so yeah, I, I personally am risk averse uh, in the sense that I would never run a store that was blatantly violative of both federal law and state law, uh, especially when New York's regulations aren't out yet for retailers. Right. So for people to take that risk, to me, the real risk is not really, you know, arrest and prosecution. The risk to me is the regulator will have a record of the fact that you jumped the gun. And then when you apply to go legit, they're going to be like, why, why, why would I let you? You clearly don't care about following rules. Mm -hmm. We've seen that here too in the state with folks that were kind of in that weird area. And then when they came to go get licenses, they were just kind of, right. we, if we can't trust you to do the right thing here, how do we trust you to do the right thing here? I, I think that, you know, as, as a, I was a, a government official here in, in Amesbury on the topic for a little while. And, you know, that's, that, that's just part of being communal. I mean, if, if, if you're coming to set up a business, you know, have being a trustworthy member of the community is, is part of that. So, yeah. And what's going on now? I saw a news item this week. Uh, the city legislature of New York city is putting pressure on the mayor there to clean up what is going on that you saw, Josh, uh, in real time uh, last week in New York? Yeah, they have. They, they um, impounded, I think, three dozen uh, food trucks. But right. I, I saw at least I took photos of at least two. And so it's not stopping anybody from doing it. Well, hey, Blake, I don't know. I'm not going to put you on the spot on this, but I have no idea what the fine is uh, for. I think it, they got them because they were food trucks. They were operating without a food license, not cannabis license, a food license. And that's what the fine was. And I think I read it was in a, it was like a few hundred dollars. But if you're making thousands of dollars in your food truck, a few hundred isn't a bad, isn't a bad tariff, right? Cost of doing business. Right. That's right. Coming from the environmental uh, law background that I had before I got into cannabis and municipal law, um, a lot of companies will build in fines as a cost of doing business. I don't want to change my behavior and it's cheaper for me to pay that fine and take the slap on the wrist. Um, and, and speaking of the slaps on the wrist, there was an enforcement matter discussed at yesterday's Cannabis Control Commission here in Massachusetts. Uh, and it's, it was a pattern of basically a year long uh, worth of, of violations no fine, no threat of rescission of the license. They're putting them on sort of, you know, double secret probation. And it's like, wow, what does someone have to do to, to get their license yanked? And I don't, I don't want anyone to lose their license, but, you know, taking the, the listed, uh, you know, facts at face value, boy, did they make a lot of mistakes. I think it was something like 160 bags of weed that didn't have a metric tag on it. That's basic compliance. You can't just have weed in a licensed facility and not know where it's coming from or where it's going. I thought that was the whole reason why they wanted to go legit, right? Isn't that the idea? We want to actually know what product we're getting when we go in the store. I mean, Scott, you run a store. Um, I'm guessing when people come in, they are they relieved to see, oh, I get this is where this came from. Oh, this has this in it. Oh, okay. I'm guessing that they enjoy that process at this point. So we're, we're you know, we're 11 miles from the coast of Maine that has zero testing regulatory, nothing. Um, so I hear it a lot. The reason why people, you know, will shop here, you know, it's 20 minute drive, right? It's not that big of a, it's not that big of a deal to go up that way, but people will stay shopping here because the product is tested. Um, and, you know, we can debate, you know, at the farmer level, what parts per million are, but 
having that 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 sense of safety in the product and and you know it's made it harder for growers to get that quality as we talked about earlier blake to get that quality uh up to a place that we're we we're used to um because we've had to learn new grow techniques and just kind of be you know without the use of pesticides and such um so um yeah i think people appreciate that and we see that. I mean, we're again, we're we're in two border communities here, uh, one in Haverhill and one in Amesbury, and um, you know, people will shop with us uh, because of the testing. Uh, I I think a lot of people shop with us too because they respect what we're doing uh, locally. We hear a lot of that as well, as that we love what you're doing, um, and I think. You know, as a as a marketer, that's that's where I where I want to be. That's where we, as a company, really want to to establish ourselves. Is we, you know, we we're consumers, so we, you know, we we carry a a, a pretty decent selection of of Massachusetts product. We're also, as far as services, one of the only in the state. There's a few now, uh, but we, you know, we kind of started doing deli before really anybody else was doing deli. Um, and so it's just an added service, at, you know, um, and and then our our long list of philanthropic accomplishments that nobody has matched. Right. And so a lot of the people in the communities that we you know, that, you know, Amesbury, Salisbury, Newburyport. I was out on Plum Island today. That's what people are. What people say is we love what you're doing for the community. And that's what keeps people coming back. Yeah, I, I, you know, I think you're in a very friendly area because there are some pockets in this state now with what is it, 240 plus dispensaries that are under the gun. First of all, the competition among every dispensary now has gotten much more fierce. Scott, have you been, have you, have you felt any of the other retail pressure um, or have you got yourself pretty well established at this point in your area? I, so I, there's two things here. First of all, we are established. Second of all, with the cultivation site coming on next year, we're not looking at our neighbors as competitors. We'll have our product on their shelves. Um, and so, you know, it, that's, I, I think that's one of the, the things that Massachusetts has done right. Uh, you know, they've done plenty right. So don't get me wrong there, but um, you know, the fact that we can only own three stores, right? The Uber capitalists will criticize me, including on my own team. Um, but the fact that we can only own three stores keeps us all talking. It keeps us all collaborative. I mean, if I want to get product in the Western part of the state or the Southern part of the state, you know, we have to have friends, we have to have relationships. And so um, I, I, I don't look at that competition the same way. I think some of the healthy stuff we see with pricing and services and, and, you know, raising the bar philanthropically. I think those are healthy. Um, the same thing at the cultivation side, where it's like, look at what my dosey does testing that, or, you know, Ooh, that smells, does your smell that good? I think, I think those are all healthy competitive pieces that, that we all look forward to in the market is that we, we, we look forward to meeting at the cultivator cup or, or the harvest, you know, harvest cup and, and and comparing notes and and going back to our team with that that little healthy bit of competition but other than that i you know i i think for the vertical the vertically integrated folks i think it's different than it is for single license holders so if you just have a retail or if you just have a cultivation and i was just talking with a, a new wholesaler today about the same is that um we we don't have the same arguments we don't have the same 
the same outlook. We don't look at our neighbors as competitors because again, we're we're looking to get our product on on their shelves um, as well. I also think there's different lanes of competition you can enter, right? I mean, the MSOs are going to have uh, a death grip on lowest price per unit. Um, they just will because they they you know spend money to to scale up and automate. Um, I just personally think I call that sort of the fat middle of the market. Um, that's what I would classify as, you know, the Bud Light of the weed. Lots of people like it and enjoy it and they like the price. I'd say objectively, it's not as good as smaller batch products because people spend more time per plant. So, you know, the sweatshirt I'm wearing now, Coyote Cannabis Company, I started that because I bought rosin from a store, brought it home, and it was categorically not rosin. Like, you can't call what they sold me rosin, and that made me so mad that I started a company about it. So the goal there is not to fight with the people who are going to, you know, look at me like a bad business person by leaving a couple nickels and dimes on the table. They're going to say your labor cost is too high. And to that, I respond, your product isn't good enough for me to consume. So you can win at the boardroom level and I'm going to win by making something that I actually want to consume myself. Are we at saturation in Massachusetts, Blake? I'm going to ask you that because I know you're going to open your doors at a great location in a little while. But um, when are we going to have too many dispensaries sure uh i mean like you said we have about 240 open today um you know 351 municipalities throughout the state um we've got almost 7 million people in the state 21 percent of our population admits to consuming cannabis regularly that's about 1.4 million people uh we're obviously geographically proximate to other states that are dragging their feet um so no i, I think we're a little more than halfway to saturation in terms of brick and mortar retail stores and the associated supply chain uh to support that um but, you know, I don't think we'll have quite as many stores as there are liquor stores. But if you just look at that analogy, which I don't think is perfect, people like this product. Um, and more and more people, I think of my parents' generation, will say, oh, my, I'm not going to get judged, you know, playing bridge if I come high. So there's going to be people who come out of the closet and realize, wait, this isn't, you know, the devil's lettuce like the federal government has lied to us about for years. Um, and I think, you know, having someone smoke a joint at a 4th of July party will be equally, you know, not notable as it is when someone drinks an infused seltzer, right? I just think that the, the substance itself has the following. The more people who try it might say, wow, that's delightful. And I don't have a horrible crushing hangover. Oh, and by the way, it biologically can't kill me. So why wouldn't I do that? Um, I think humans for, for all of human history have, have put things in our bodies to make our brains feel differently. Um, you know, I remember as a kid spinning around until I was dizzy. And I often thought, do a lot of people who try drugs, do they do that beforehand? I don't know. Um, it's, it's a nice, you know, respite from the crushing weight of reality. That's why I consume cannabis every night before my kids, you know, after my kids are asleep before I go to bed. Um, so no, I think the appetite is there. I think it's going to stay there. Um, and I think there's going to be a huge shuffle in who remains open. I think some people, uh, in the early days, you know, if you build it, they will come. Those days are, are dwindling really fast. If you're not accessible, if you're not near where the people are, you're going to fail. Um, and it has nothing to do with your product mix, your, you know, your, your store experience. Um, I just personally think a lot of people over-design these stores and think that people want some sort of you know, coaching or journey. Some do. I think most people shop you know, like their liquor store. I, I know what I want. Or maybe I'll ask a couple questions. It's not this, you know, hour-long consultative experience. Uh, it's based on price and convenience, right? Those are the, the two things that everyone in every category across the world is price and convenience. 
And one one note about the three store limit, Washington State had that as well, and now we have six. So when when I mentioned that every state has high expenses and low supply, all of that works its way out, including the regulatory her, uh, restrictions on things like stores. That will open up. You guys will be able to have five or six in about two years, just like everybody else. Prices of of hash will go from sixty dollars a gram down to something more normal. Uh, and just like everything else, a, an $80 one gram of uh, concentrate or cart, vape cart will come back down to, you know, $30, $40 for a gram. Everything that happens in these emerging markets like Massachusetts uh, is not abnormal. It's pretty, uh, as an analyst myself, I can predict all of these things on a graph. And eventually within two years, you guys will call come back down to normal. And I think to Jimmy's question earlier about what's it going to take to get some kind of um, you know, normalcy in terms of, of the numbers and the competition. I think a lot of that has to do with brands that are pretending to make hash, like you were mentioning, Blake, those guys are gone. Like, forget about it. And so capitulation and uh, these individuals who have no idea what they're doing are all going to fail when the economy finally crashes. And it's crashing right now. We just saw two days ago, like, uh, the fifth worst market in history in terms of the S&P 500 futures. So there will be a time when these individuals who are too altruistic to pay themselves, you know, they're struggling and they're not paying themselves a dime. They got to go. They've been doing this for five or 10 years and uh, eventually they're going to get out of the way. And so there probably won't be as many stores as needed. And then that's where that Budweiser, unfortunately, thing is going to come in where these big conglomerates will, will appease the masses but that just leaves more discerning customers that actually know what good hash tastes like. We'll be able to know where to go, where to find it. But for all those other folks that just want Big Bud, that'll be available, I think, in the same kind of areas like grocery stores and liquor stores. It won't be their four or 500 growers that we see in Washington State or 7,500 licenses in Oklahoma. It's just not realistic. Right. Hey, so speaking. I don't, I don't, let me, so I don't, so I have two parts, two parts. I'm sorry, Jim. Um, two parts. So, the first part is I think we keep confusing stores with cultivation, right? So, you know, uh, and I always use the analogy, Jim Beam doesn't own a liquor store, right? So, but they produce and they ship out all over the place. So I, you know, if there's not a ton of dispensaries, it doesn't mean, you know, like our store, we carry over 40 different manufacturers. And when we're growing our own, it'll sit right next to those same 40 manufacturers, um, I, and, and so, you know, the store a half mile away, similar menus, just like a liquor store. Um, and to Blake's point, I think, I think Boston, so we're going into Boston as well. So we're, we're going to be in Dorchester. Um, and we know that the half mile buffer, uh, doesn't support enough stores, right? So we're having to all go in before the, well, we did have to go in be, be, before the zoning board of appeal and reduce those spaces. So, I mean, that just goes to say that there's going to be one less than a half a mile away times 52 licenses within the city of Boston. To your point, that's still only 20% of the amount of liquor stores in Boston. But liquor stores, first of all, don't pay the same amount of, you know, retail space, uh, you know, all that green tax stuff that we, we talked about, right? Um, and as a cultivator, regardless of what the price does on this end, it's still going to cost you $10 million to $13 million to build that cultivation site. Yeah. 
So that's where we saw in, in, in some par other parts of the country where, you know, the, the market got flooded, the price dropped, and you can't afford to make payments on that $13 million cultivation facility. So it's done. It's over. Yeah. So we hey. have to be very, there has to be a sensible balance yes. to, to where business can stay alive with its investment that it's spent, mm -hmm. that it's already at the high side. Mm -hmm. If the prices were the plummet, you know, a lot of those, a lot of, and we're not early adopters. You're explaining MedMen's model right now. Yeah. Hang on. I got to take a time out guys. This has been great. Uh, you know, I've got a couple more guests, I believe coming in next. Um, but Blake, I told you, you could plug your webinar next week. Oh, yeah. so I want you, I want you to be able to do that. Go ahead. Thank you. Uh, so next Tuesday at 10 a.m., I'm uh, co-sponsoring a webinar uh, with Mass Lawyers Weekly on uh, all of the changes from the recent cannabis reform that Governor Baker signed at the end of July. Uh, it's going to be chock full of information. Uh, it's myself, an attorney from Davis Mom, going over the nuts and bolts about what comes next. Uh, and then actually later that day, I'm talking at Boston Cannabis Week. Uh, about that unique corporate structure I described uh, for our South Station store. So yeah, if you can tune in, that'd be great. Um, and yeah, thanks as always, Jimmy. Where do, where do we where do we get more information on that? Uh, the Mensing Group. Yeah, so I have it on my LinkedIn. My, I got kicked off of Instagram recently, uh, but I'll put it out on Twitter so you guys can sign up. I'm at the Mensing Group uh, on Twitter. I'll put that out. And uh, yeah, thanks for the reminder. No worries. All right. We're going to take a break, Scott. Always a pleasure to see you, sir. Um, I look forward to, uh, you know, you won't believe this, but I'm actually moving closer to you. And I can explain that off air, if you will. Oh, We're going to take a break and come back on the I other side. I you more often, actually. All right. I appreciate that, man. I appreciate it. We'll come back in a little while. Don't go away. With that, we're going to roll this one up. I'm Josh Kincaid. This is The Talking Hedge. Don't forget to like, share, and subscribe, or don't, and I'm out. Don't forget to smash that like button on your way out and check out these other videos that we've got. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Season one of Dope History is now available at dopehistory.com. Dope History weaves you through the lives of those who have been touched by cannabis or have had an influence on the events that shaped our laws or relationships with this plant. You'll hear tales from Frenchie Cannoli, Keith Strop, Eddie Lepp, Tom Alexander, Ed Rosenthal, Wolf Seagull, Jorge Cervantes, and Tommy Chong. Available now at dopehistory.com.